0: hey standouts welcome to how she did it a podcast where i explore the career paths of women of color i want to share some highlights from the last year and also to set my intentions for this podcast for 2018. I'm going to play clips from episodes and share why they were meaningful to me. You may get something different out of them. The first clip I want to highlight is from my conversation with Carla Hoden. Carla is the founder of Her Business Boutique, and she helps women set up successful marketing campaigns their online businesses. And
1: then I started studying under this woman, Dr. Pat Allen, about communication Mm -hmm. and that's a certification that I got. So then I started going into a different arena and I thought I'd talk a little bit more about communication and relationships and got my first coaching client, paying coaching client. I was so scared to bring my business cards, I was scared to talk to people because this is the first time I'm branching outside of my friends, Mm -hmm. going to talk to strangers. It was after, it was after one of her, she does this monthly seminar. Okay. It was after the seminar, they go and they do a happy hour type thing. Okay. So everyone there had just come from the Dr. Mm. Pat Allen world. So everyone was talking about it. Okay. And there were a handful of us who had all just finished graduating from the course So we were mm. all there and someone was asking questions about what to do in a certain situation. I was answering it and the guy was like, you know, are are you taking clients? And I was like, yes, I guess I am taking clients. How much do you charge? Uh, I charge $75 an hour. You <laughs> <laughs> And I had a coach at the time who told me to not charge less than 150 because uh-huh. if I charge less than 150, no one's going to value it. All that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. There was no way I was going to say It was yeah, yeah, yeah. not going to come out of my mouth. 75 sounded crazy. He said Okay, 75. Okay. I'd like to book a session. Um, you know, I can really use help with communicating this stuff. and having that, First client gave me the confidence. Then I got two more clients. And the next week I got two more clients. It broke the seal. It gave me the confidence to start.
0: In another part of this conversation, Carla and I discuss the two years it took me to launch How She Did It. It started as an idea in October of 2015. I wanted to use my human resources and recruiting experience to help women of color in their careers. And it wasn't until September of 2017 that I did something and that was releasing this podcast. Two years. And even with all that time, I forgot the cable for my USB mic to record the first interview. So Carla's conversation is meaningful because it reminds me to trust my abilities. I gain confidence by taking what I've learned and executing. Sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't, which leads me to my interview with Salmia Murthy, the chief marketing officer at Seven Lake Technologies.
2: There's one other thing, if I may, Mm -hmm. and that has to do with Quincy. Quincy, who was the chief marketing officer, he now is the chief marketing officer for IBM's cloud business. And he was the first place where I fully felt safe to keep failing. And he would just make the space to go enough to go, okay, that wasn't how it was supposed to go and these are the consequences bit that's okay stand up so one of the things i notice that is across a lot of the alpha women myself included is because of what we believe we have to do to get to where we got we tell ourselves we cannot fail Unfortunately, you cannot get past middle management and you will not sustain leadership. Why? Because you are transmitting this energy of I cannot fail, and you have an entire team, an entire business that will not sustain itself because you just told everyone with your energy you cannot fail. The biggest part about, and call it a ladder, to where I am now is this complete freedom to fuck up.
3: But what does that look like from a leader? I feel that sometimes leaders say that, but then their actions don't match what they are saying. They're so, not really allowing yeah. it to happen. What mm-hmm. What was it about Quincy and your current mm-hmm. boss that let you know that that was really true?
2: I'll take Shiva because we've dovetailed right into mm-hmm. our, my current <laughs> position. Shiva and I are off by a year, and why do I say that? Because there's a sense of kinship of experience, but he, in terms of experiencing building a business, he's eons ahead. He built a fifteen million dollar business way before I ever stepped in. And board had said you need a CMO, so I would walked into a position where he had brought me in because he was told he needed me. And so he left a lot of leeway and rope. So what did I do? I ran with it because I thought I needed to demonstrate results immediately. One of the agencies I hired sucked up a big part of our budget, and they were a big company PR company they sucked at giving us the attention and it was humiliating and it was so much money for us when i look back spending money to make money was where i'd come from and so i wasn't willing to take the ownership of that that had happened and it was my ceo who stepped in and said look The reason you're doing what you're doing is because I pushed you. It's my sense of impatience that got you where you are. I told the board, it's me that drove you. And in that moment, he made it okay for me to fuck up. Because he told me in that moment, you fuck up, I got your back. And I'm the one that falls on, not you. So now get up, go. But this time, the rope's going to be a lot tighter. And that I did not like. So for a good year, we had a tight rope and we had to walk that plank together and... And now we walk in, we have this choreography of how we walk into deals, how we walk into clients that we're implementing. I am his wingman. I build him up. It wouldn't have happened if he didn't step in and make it okay. Can you please snap out of your ego and stop thinking that you got to get it all right? Because the longer you stayed locked in that place of ego, the less useful you are.
0: A few weeks after I launched the podcast, one of my friends, David Hutchinson, who also has a podcast, sent me an email. He said my podcast was, quote, very raw and real. When I see the word raw, I hear unpolished and unprofessional. But in the very next sentence of David's email, he said, quote, I would definitely own that. It works. The subject line of his email, which was in all caps, was "Quote, love your podcast, but here I have allowed one word to dominate feedback, which, how it was used in context, was positive, because it was early in my podcast. I was in this heightened state of my podcast not being good enough. It reminds me of a famous line from one of Erica Badu's songs. I'm gonna test this out, like quick, on, yeah. Now keep in mind that I'm an artist, and I'm sensitive about my shit." which dovetails perfectly to my conversation with Amanda Guzman. Amanda is the head of operations at the Cheryl Sandberg and Dave Goldberg Family Foundation. Was there a person or a situation that helped or hindered you at that job?
4: Yeah, I would say like my mentor actually was great. He definitely took the feedback very seriously. So what I would have to do when I did an assignment for him is I would have to make an appointment with his secretary because he always was on calls and and his schedule was very packed. And then I would go in and I would print out the assignments and then sit in front of him while he marked it up. And he would tell me exactly why he didn't like the sentence I'd written or something like that. And like kind of like the highest of compliments was Mm -hmm. I would tell him to. His face, if he'd be like, Oh, you know, that wasn't bad. And I was like, Can you email me that so I can put that on my wall? Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> he, was, he was harsh, but he would repeatedly say, like, especially when I first joined, he was like, This is not personal. He's like, I'm trying to take you from like a B plus to an A plus here. Like, and he really did make me a much better attorney, a much better writer. Like he knew his stuff backwards and forwards, so I learned a ton. Um, but it definitely was not something for the thin skinned, I will say that. Um, I did learn a lot from him. But um, so this was so it just was like a whole nother level of feedback to like be sitting directly in front of someone and like everything about why your work wasn't good. I mean, he did that with everybody. And, you know, I I think he did care about making me a better lawyer. And so that was, you know, just knowing that someone is doing something because they, um, you know, are not trying to attack you, but care about your development as an attorney or in whatever job you are. um, I think this helps frame the feedback in a much more positive way of like, wow, now I'm going to be even better at this, you know? Yeah.
0: I love, love, love how Amanda framed this feedback as something that would help her become a better lawyer. How She Did It was not the original name of this podcast. I changed it after a coaching session with Anne Cumberry. Anne is brilliant at what she does, which is helping people communicate what they do in captivating and engaging ways. During our 30-minute session, I said the phrase, how she did it. Actually, I said, how did she get there? And Anne's eyes lit up and her feedback was she liked how she did it over the path as my podcast name. So a month before I launched the podcast, I changed the name. I was both resistant and receptive to Anne's feedback. Resistance because I had already recorded three episodes, which in retrospect is a ridiculous reason. I can and did edit out the one time in each episode where I referenced the name of the podcast. So moving on to the next podcast highlight, here's a clip from my conversation with Allison Carpio. Allison is a sales copywriter for health e-commerce entrepreneurs. I intentionally sought her out because I'm a slow writer and wanted advice on how to speed up my writing process. Like, I feel like I'm such a slow
5: writer. How do you write good and fast? That's a really great question. And this answer might disappoint you. <laughs> <laughs> um... <laughs> (laughs) Part of it is process, which is very, very, very unsexy. No one wants to hear about process when it comes to writing. So a good example for me is, um, I know that I write best early in the morning. So I block off two or three hours in the morning to just write because my mind is so fresh. It's very clear and I just, and I'm a morning person. So that also helps. The other part is your mindset. And from what I've gathered, um, people who, Write slowly, or think they write slowly, is because they might be worried about what people will think when they put this out there. Mm-hmm. And then another part of it is research. So when I write any copy, I had already talked to many people that I'm selling to already, many past customers. I had read service survey data. I had um, researched any data about the product or the industry. So if I'm stuck on something, it's not because I don't know what to say. It's more like, how do I make this crystal clear or how do I position it in a certain way where research usually solves that. Mm. How did you figure out what worked for you? It was trying out a lot of different things and taking note of what I produced, how I felt about it and what the result was. So another example is there was this one day where I had a deadline that I committed to and it was a very reasonable deadline. However, I also had a ton of meetings back to back and it's really hard to switch from meeting mode to creating and writer mode. And I noticed that and luckily I didn't miss the deadline, but it was definitely not my best work. And I communicated that to my boss. So what I ended up doing that day forward was for every Wednesday morning, I would block off three or four hours to work from a cafe or work from home where no one can bother me. I would not be on chat, on Slack or on any type of messenger. I would not check my emails. It was simply dedicated writing time, and that really helped.
0: Others have told me I'm a good writer, but I think I write slow. As a copywriter, Allison has to meet deadlines, so I assumed she wrote fast, and I wanted to know how she was able to focus and produce great work consistently. Her answer, despite her saying it was unsexy, was exactly what I needed to hear. Speaking of hearing words you need to hear, here's a clip from my interview with Dr. Deanne Davis-Brooks. She is an associate professor at Salem College.
6: I had awesome. When I say awesome, I mean awesome professors and mentors at UNCG. So I, and and awesome in that they challenged me. When I started, I was the head coach at Elon. So for two years, I was a head coach and trying to pursue a doctorate. And I remember clearly handing in a paper to Dr. Cheryl, Cheryl Hoffman. And I told him, Oh, my gosh, I've been recruiting. I've been making phone calls. We had a meet this week. This is the best I could do. And he looked me square in my eyes and said, this is not the quality of work that's acceptable. You can do better. And if you can't do this in your job, you need to quit one. Mm -hmm. And so he told me, he was like, if this, if you really want to pursue this doctorate, we're going to require a higher level of quality from you. And if you, you can't meet the standard, then you got to go. And so he was right. I was not passionate about coaching at the collegiate level. I'm passionate about coaching, but, um, many of the things involved in the job of being a college coach were not appealing to me. And he was right. I wanted to be more involved in. The department at UNCG, I wanted to take more classes. I just wanted to that's where I wanted to put my energy. And so that, at the end of that semester I quit my job at Elon and became um, a TA in the department at UNCG. I started going to academic conferences. I, you know that's really the moment where I took the path that I'm on now. So Cheryl Hoffman, I I clearly remember looking at him like, (laughs) how dare you tell me I need to quit? But he was right. You know, he was so wise and so honest that that was an awesome moment that I will never forget. But I also had two. I had co-directors of my um, dissertation committee, so they were my my academic advisors. One was Dr. Kathy Jamison, and the other was Dr. Bill Carper. And they could not have been more different in terms of what they study and their backgrounds, but they came together in terms of being able to see me. And when I say see me, I mean look beyond... Whatever They were able to challenge me in a way that nobody else had. And I don't know what it was that they saw in me, but they um, both were able to... I, okay, let me give you an example. So I was in a doctoral seminar with Kathy Jameson and I was the only black female in the class. And there were maybe six other students in there. So one of our assignments was to read an article and write a critique on it. So um, and then our classmates were to respond to everybody. And I remember watching the message board go and everybody else who posted classmates would give really eloquent responses and challenges and all of that. And then, then I remember posting mine, right? I posted my critique and The only comment that I received was very Mm. well written. And so you say, because you get that, right? You get that. And I'm sure that none of my other classmates got why that was insulting and upsetting for me. And I'm sure that most of the professors that I had had to that point would not have recognized why that was upsetting to me. But Kathy Jamison actually emailed me prior to our next class and said, how do you feel about this? Do I need to address this with your classmates? And so at that point, I knew that she got me differently than other people in academia would. And so I had a conversation with her um, and basically said, no, as long as you support me, I'm cool but I think it is worth the conversation for people to know how these unconscious biases show up, right? Their unconscious bias was that I shouldn't be able to write that well. Why else would you write that? Hey, this is a very well-written comment. I'm a doctoral student. I should be able to write well, right? So let's get to something that's more meaningful, but she was able to see that and call that out. And Dr. Carper He was the person who actually agreed to take me on as a doctoral student for all intents and purposes, admitted me to the program and really challenged me in my writing to make sure that I was progressing, really challenged me in any assumptions that I made as I was doing my research and made sure that everything I did was at such a high quality that I would be prepared to go out and succeed. And so they were so important to me, I just don't even know how I can repay them ever. Because they 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 also were the ones who told me, hey, you might make a good teacher. I had never thought about it. Like even though I had gone full tilt into the academic department I never thought about being a teacher because it's, you know, I just, I didn't know anybody who had done it on the college level. I knew that all of my teachers had been professors because they were at major universities. I knew I didn't want to be a researcher. It was really that experience in the department at UNCG that changed my outlook and my mindset and my own expectations of what it would be possible to do with my,
0: my background. So... The truth hurts sometimes, especially when someone articulates something you know is true, or if it's by someone whose opinion matters. I thought of something Brene Brown said during an interview with Chase Jarvis. If you don't know Brene, she is a New York Times bestselling author and researcher on shame, vulnerability, and connection. During this interview, she explained how to handle feedback and shared a short exercise I will describe to you right now. Get out a small piece of paper and on that piece of paper, put the names of people whose opinions matter to you. If the person isn't on your list, let their words or feedback go in one ear and write out the other. Deanne lived that advice while in graduate school. She knew her professor's and advisor's opinions mattered over the students in her class. My word for 2018 is ownership. It symbolizes the active role I am taking in making things happen in my life this year. The next set of clips are helpful to remember if you want to take a more active role in owning your life. The first clip I'll share is from Jess Puccinelli. Jess is the owner of Hot Hope. Worked nonstop.
7: Remember this position, I was the only person who'd ever done it. Mm-hmm. So I had tons of pro- proprietary information. Yeah, No one knew. It was nowhere. It was just all up here. Who to call for this, who to do for this. And because I had such an amazing team and I worked for such amazing people, I really, and even if I hadn't, I really believe in leaving something better than you found it.
3: Mm-hmm.
7: Right? Yeah. So I worked tirelessly. I would I would get to work early. I remember my sales team was like, why are you asking us for things so far ahead in, in advance? But it's because I knew I was leaving and I wanted everybody to be set up for success. You know, I was in the office usually probably like by 7 a.m. And then I would do all my work, 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 the day-to-day work, stay late, get stuff done ahead, go home work on my business, take my lunch breaks. Like during my lunch breaks, I would go to, you know, uh, get my DBA and like, you know, get my seller's license and my wholesaler's license and my tax information for the business. And then, um, or any meetings and things that I needed to have. And then I did that for two months. And then in that last month, I put in a one month notice instead of. How did they take it? They were so excited for me. Really? They became my first client. They threw me a huge going away party. I had, remember my sales team, they were like, you were always bigger than this place. <laughs> like, you were never meant to be here. Like, we knew you'd spread your wings. But Dean was the kind of boss who would always preface things with, when you leave here, when you're on to your next thing. Really? And he taught me. Right that things weren 't that it 's okay for things not to be finite or even yeah. for people to not be finite or your team, but I really honored my leaders, and I set the, i mean I set them up for success. I interviewed mm-hmm. the person who came in okay. after me, so I was that involved in the process, and they were so gracious. I think my expectation was you know maybe that there would be some frustration, but there wasn't mm-hmm. There was only excitement
0: when I moved to Los Angeles from Atlanta almost four years ago. I felt incredibly guilty about leaving my then job. When my then boss hired me, he got me out of an unpleasant work situation. So when I resigned, I gave a two-month notice to help hire and train my replacement and set the company up for success after I left. Jess and I are similar in our philosophies. So in 2018, as I weigh new opportunities and move on from existing ones, I will remember this advice from Jess. And now to my interview with Mickey Reynolds. Mickey is the executive director of Grid 110, a nonprofit she co founded that supports startups and founders in downtown Los Angeles.
8: Where do I go to meet people, connect? Couldn't find anything. And then I remember seeing, I've been a fan of General Assembly since it, its inception in New York, and I remember actually writing down on an Evernote, like, bucket list of things I want to do was to bring General Assembly to LA. But then they came to LA, so I was like, cool, this is awesome. Went to a few things, took like a, a couple, maybe free classes that they had there. And so at this time, um, I saw on Eventbrite that they were doing um Business Development for Startups class. Um, And at the time, I was working with a friend that's kind of like an advisor to his startup, and he wanted some help with business development. And I'm like, I don't really know much about that, so let me learn. And then I saw this class, and then they canceled the class. At that point, I was just like, why aren't they doing more out here? And so I uh, reached out on Twitter to, uh, I was following the regional director at the time, Sarah Tilton, and I was like, oh, I want to follow like the important people that work in the places that I really admire. So I reached out to the GALA Twitter account and Sarah and I was like hey are you guys thinking about expanding you know, you're offering outside of the West side, like classes or events or anything like to the East side, like Hollywood or downtown. And she responded back and she's like, yeah, we're actually thinking about it. What would you like to see? And I was like, I have some ideas and it's more than 140 characters. Can I email you? And she's like, yeah, absolutely. I was also working, I used to volunteer for a nonprofit called Stoked. Um, It's a action sports based mentoring program for at-risk youth. And um, it teaches surfboarding, skateboarding and snowboarding to kids. You know, it's the, The life skills that you learn through doing hard, kind of adventurous things, Um, communication, teamwork, community, um, getting up when you fall down, like those types of things. I was talking to the founder. He uh, had this endowment for this really cool innovation lab that he wanted to build out in their Brooklyn office. And he's like, I need some programming ideas. What should I do? And I was like, what about like an entrepreneurship program? A lot of what you teach is like the foundations of entrepreneurship. And wouldn't it be cool to provide this as like a base layer of like a summer program for these kids to learn? And wouldn't it be cool to give them the foundational layer of what it means to be an entrepreneur so that if they have ideas for something, they know how to take those next steps. And so I was like, oh, GA could be a really cool partner for this. And so the email that I wrote was kind of like starting with that. And then it was also... You know, I'm based in downtown LA. I have some free time right now. Um, is there anything I can do to help you guys with your expansion? Da, 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 da. I got an email back. She's like, I love all of this. I'm forwarding this to our head of expansion mm-hmm. and uh, set up a phone call with them. And then it was just like a couple phone calls and in-person coffee chats. And then they ended up bringing me on to lead the expansion for downtown LA.
0: The last job I got through traditional means was in 2003. And by traditional, I mean, I code applied to a job posting with no connections at the company. So I've gotten to all my jobs and projects since then through networking and referrals. The summer before my senior year of college, I attended a career changing summer program at UNC Chapel Hill. The program helps students see the realities of attending medical or dental school. This program helped me see that I didn't want to go to dental school. The director of the program wanted more black and brown students in medical and dental school. He has this saying, which I call the door, the window, the ceiling. It describes how we needed to do whatever it takes to get into medical or dental school. He'd say, if you can't get in through the front door, go through the back door. If you can't get in through the back door, go through the window. If you can't get in through the window, go through the ceiling. And if you can't get in through the ceiling, blow the roof off of it. As I listed my goals for my career and this podcast for 2018 down to my dream guests, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get what I want and to ask for help often. And now for my final snippet. I'm going to get a little sentimental with you. This is from my episode with Heidi Vaccarano. She is an entertainment attorney and the managing director of the Los Angeles chapter of Girls in Tech. So
9: you go to USC, and did you immediately declare
3: political science and government as a major? According to the
9: guidance counselor, political science is the most likely major to get you into law school. I had no idea what it meant, what it was. I was like, all right, I'll do what she says. Mm -hmm. Um, About two years in, I discovered that that was not necessary. Mm -hmm. How did you discover that? I met my former boss at an LSAT prep event, and she was wearing jeans, a t-shirt, and had bright red hair and cursed through the entire panel. And I was like, I want to do what she does. Mm. And it was the first time I had heard of music law. Hmm. So I went up to her, I waited, and I'm like, do you need an intern? And she gave me her card, and I went to interview a couple weeks later and my dream had been to have a record label get a JD and an MBA and run the Saddle Creek of the West which was a, a record label that I loved all the artists and I loved their community and so I wanted to recreate that with my friends mm-hmm. over on the west coast so what was it about Saddle Creek that it was wow. it was pretty much like indie emo rock <laughs> And um, that's saying a lot about me. <laughs> um, but I love that it was all run by friends, and they mm-hmm. all worked with each other. They were like kind of rotated in each other's bands, mm-hmm. took each other on tour. Huh. So um, I love that ethos behind.
3: It. So were you musically?
9: No, not a single, <laughs> not a single instrument. You like listening
3: to other people, yeah, but
9: <laughs> not unless you count karaoke. <laughs> karaoke is
3: hard. Oh, it's fun though. Okay, so you were. Um, knew you wanted to do music law, mm-hmm. so you were able to get connected with this lady that seemed like unconventional. Yes. An unconventional mm-hmm. lawyer. Why do you think that you were able to... What she chose you? Did she interview multiple people, or what do you think it was about I you? I think
9: they did. At that point, um, I was about a year and a half in, right? And so I... Is
3: that... Early for people to start taking LSAT classes
9: right. and Yeah, but again, remember I have a mom sitting right behind me. She's like, uh, what are you doing? Why are you wasting? I'm like, I'm actually in school. Like I tried to go home one summer and take the summer off and she was like, Funny, go get a job. <laughs> like literally was like go get worked at its small Jewish bakery in my mm-hmm. town and she wouldn't even drive me to work. I had to walk there. <laughs>
3: What do you think was the driving force behind your mom being, like, super, like, not pushing, but, like, good pushing, but yeah. just, like,
9: always kind of, like...
3: I will say listening.
9: that it, I, it sounds like pushing, but now as I look back, I had a supportive backing all the time. My mom would, like, if I was there at zero period, she'd figure out for me how to be there. If I was going to be at seventh period, she'd wait in the parking lot until I was done. Mm-hmm. She would carry my backpack. She would, even when I took the bar she came with me and she would have my snacks ready, have my flashcards ready. I just felt like I always had an angel behind me. Yeah.
0: One of my favorite movies is sliding doors starring Gwyneth Paltrow. The movie shows how her life and career both hinge unknown to her on whether she catches a train. The movie shows what happens in both situations when she, if she had caught the train and if she had not. In the end, the final results of her love life and career are the same. The path to that is different. I recall a personal sliding door experience right before I started sixth grade. I had high enough grades that my mom felt should earn me a place in the gifted program. I tested but didn't score high enough. My mom first went to my principal and when that didn't work, she went to the superintendent of our school system. Actually, I think I tested after she went to the principal. I don't remember. I was 10. Not sure what she would said, but when sixth grade started, I was in the academically gifted program. At the time, I didn't understand why my mom was making such a big deal about this. But in ninth grade, I met Mrs. Small. She was the teacher for all academically gifted students for 9th through 11th grades. If I wasn't in the academically gifted program, if I wasn't in the academically gifted program, I would have never had Mrs. Small as a teacher. In 9th grade, Mrs. Small told my mom and I that I was going to Spelman College. There was no other option. She knew it was the right place for a smart black girl like me. She then spent the next three years convincing my mom and me. My mom took no convincing. I took a lot. So thank you, mom, for pushing and fighting for me when I didn't understand my worth. May we all see our worth in 2018 and take action towards having a career we love. I'll be back next Wednesday with a brand new episode, And I look forward to sharing a new conversation with you every Wednesday in 2018. The background music for this episode is by Ryan Little. For links to the episodes and other items mentioned, go to yolandaenook.com forward slash 2017.